Oh, look at that. Live. Live, that beautiful intro music, that wonderful uh, intro that Danielle Jones, El Presidente of the board, has made. It's a great way to start the show. Welcome, everybody out there. Welcome to Casa Live. Yeah, we see you out in chat. Thank you for being here. Uh, I guess we'll uh, I guess we'll keep the fun bit of this show for just a little while. We're going to we're going to keep it in the back for just a little while. We're going to keep him in the back for just a little while. We'll introduce him <laughs> soon. Uh, real quick before we uh, before we dive into all that, we do have some legislative things to go through. Alex has some things for us to talk about. But first, I just got to ask Kristen. Hey, how are you? Good. Better than last week. Yeah, you're feeling better. Yes. I mean, I wasn't feeling too bad. It was mostly the uh, mostly the coughing and stuff, but yeah. uh, still have a little bit of the thing going. So I've got my chai tea latte going on here. And Nice. Uh, a good warm drink. Yeah. yeah. Keep things loosened up here because I'm sure yeah. I have lots of questions for Jacob. <laughs> like honey tea is one of the things that I go to if I have a sore throat. Some black tea with honey in it is that's like one of my go to things. I'm glad you're feeling better though. I've oh, yeah, today I'll, I'll admit today has been rough for me. I've had a, a horrible headache all day long, but it is finally starting to feel better. I think I'm oh. finally getting hydrated enough. We but just by have the end a of the show, we're gonna you. rant we're gonna rant enough about things that my skull's just gonna be like, I'm done, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, hey, how are you? Doing all right. Uh similarly uh kind of a gloomy day up here in the uh American suburb of Montreal. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, excited for the show, excited for our guest. Sorry, I don't have a lot of like feels about feels. So <laughs> that's okay. I don't have a lot of feels about feels either. That's okay. Uh, we're all saving the emotions for the next hour or so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel you on the, I think that's where the majority of my headache has come from today is just the weather out here. It's just been, a bit chillier than normal and like there's it's just been rain all day and gray and like i don't know maybe that's where it's coming from you know weird I, pressure things happening I, I i love a good gloomy day like from sun up to sundown like i love i actually love the days where you get to like lunchtime or even dinner and it's like it feels like it's been 8 a.m all day long yeah it's, it's one of those things where it feels like i i have this excuse to just not do anything and I yes. will totally lean into that. Yeah, I, I opted out of work today. Saturdays yeah. for me, I, I work every Saturday till around noon usually, but it's a it's a voluntary overtime thing. Then it's not a mandatory thing for me. And today I woke up at, at quarter after 5 a.m. And uh, I looked outside. It was pouring. I checked the weather. It was bad. And I was like, you know what? No, not with this headache. I'm just going to avoid it today. I'm not gonna. My paycheck will hate me for it next week, but that's okay. That is okay. Anyways, without further ado, uh, I, I guess as Alex tells us, we can move swiftly along here. Alex, are you ready to move swiftly along? Move swiftly, yes. Okay, let's do the thing. All right, Mr. Clark, what do you have for us this week? What do people need to know? Keep an eye on, keep an ear out for. So uh, we still have the active national engagement here, stop an excessive federal excise tax on safer nicotine products. 
Um, there's been some news recently coming out of the White House, I believe. Um, oh, is it Jen Psaki? Um, I, I think has, and maybe other people in the White House have been uh, sort of actively distancing the Biden administration uh, in terms of keep you know credit for for putting this tax in any proposal. Um, so it seems like um, you know that in in combination with uh, some statements from Kristen Cinema by way of Amanda Wheeler um, are uh, indicating that this might be removed. Um, but still a good opportunity for people to kind of keep up pressure on uh, their lawmakers and, and let them know that we're here. Um, they seem to forget that uh, quite often or just intentionally ignore it. Um, so uh, that is still ongoing. Uh, the newest engagement we have up is for Washington County, Oregon. Uh, I can't remember if we talked about this I think we talked about it last week and the conclusion was we'll be putting this out on Tuesday. Um, yeah. And so here we are, um, October 19th, you have a public hearing uh, and we have all the information uh, through the, the county's website, uh, how to connect to this hearing. It is a remote hearing, so you can join via Zoom. Um, all the times, all of the procedures, talking points, why it's important to stand up against this, even though you know FDA has only authorized one product, or it's actually three products, but they're all tobacco flavor. Um, and uh, if you so please, you can read the entire ordinance, but importantly, reach out and make contact with your officials. Um, the latest intel that we got from uh, one of our volunteers out in Oregon uh, is that there is one member of the County Board of Commissioners that needs a little extra push. I sent um, a, an extra email to members living in that person's district uh, to hopefully make sure that they send their send their emails. Um, uh, we don't have phone numbers or anything on here, but it, it's it's not a big board of commissioners, so you can just go to the website and look up their phone numbers if you want to give them a call. Um, I know that's the wrong answer for me to be giving, but um, at the very least, please reach out and send them an email, a personalized email. Um, and uh, this is a flavor ban. This is what we were talking about uh, several weeks ago. Originally, this was proposed as just restricting sales of flavors to adult-only establishments, but through the course of, you know, as is the case often, uh, this has evolved into an all-out ban on sales of flavored vapor products. Uh, so get on it, Washington County, Oregon. Um, the next city is Denver, Colorado, still looking at a flavor ban. Uh, there is another hearing on Wednesday, October 27th. Um, I don't believe the agenda is posted. We have the old agenda up here. Uh, and um, of course, send your message, personalize it, tell your story, let them know why this is important to you. You do not have to send the words that we have written. You can delete them all and put your own message in there. Please be respectful uh, and, and honest. Um, we need a human face to this issue. So uh, that is Denver, Colorado. Um, just for a bit of uh, review, uh, I know that we talked about the potential of something going on in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, the, uh, I, I, I read, I actually read the article that I linked to last time. Uh, and, uh, this is, I think 
for the most part, the two things that are kind of going to affect consumers here are uh, a, a coupon or discount ban. This would apply to all tobacco products. I know that people that does that's not really something that that gets people riled up, but um, you know it's it, opposing discount bans is consistent with our uh, our belief here that that vapor products, safer nicotine products, should have some sort of cost advantage over cigarettes. Um, and you know ultimately this this is in line with regulation should be proportional to risk, uh, and so um, uh, opposing discount bans is important. Um, and we will likely put something out about that next week if I'm not already too late. I don't think I don't think we are. Um, but St. Paul has already, I believe, banned flavors in convenience stores. I think they followed up and banned flavors everywhere. Um, so not really clear on how many vape shops still exist in St. Paul. Uh, if Skip Murray's around, I know that she could probably shed some light on on the situation in Minnesota. Um, but uh, be on the lookout for that. The other thing is a license cap. Uh, they would cap the licenses for tobacco shops, which I don't know if uh, in Minnesota or St. Paul, if the definition of tobacco shop or specialty tobacco shop includes vapor vapor shops. Um, I'm just defaulting to probably. Um, and so this this is you know licensing caps. This is it's it's not as dramatic as what happened in New York City, where you had like I think something like ten thousand, eight thousand. Um, okay, thank you, Skip. There are still shops in St. Paul, um, and they should be able to offer discounts. And we don't want them to be uh, having their, we don't want their licenses being taken away because you can't get products in convenience stores. Uh, and so I answered the other question tobacco licenses are required for a dedicated vape shop. Um, so this is an important ordinance, and we'll put something out about it next week. Um, for those listening, that was Skip. Uh in the chat letting Alex know what to say. <laughs> yeah, for those of you for those of you playing the home game on the podcast without the benefit of visuals, thank you Skip Murray for the information <laughs> on Minnesota. Um, other than that, uh, just a quick note, uh, Michigan, we're still waiting to see whether or not we'll see the tie barred legislation affecting tobacco products uh, have any movement in the last, I think we're down probably down to 15 legislative days. Um, or maybe maybe it's still 21. I don't know what the schedule is, um, but uh, uh, look for that either in the coming months or more likely in the beginning of 2022. Uh, and so that's it. We got the U.S. vape tax flavor ban in Denver, Colorado, flavor ban in Washington County, Oregon, and a pending call to action coming out for a coupon and discount ban and licensing cap in St. Paul, Minnesota. And because I, I just, Alex probably hasn't seen this yet because I just got the blog out this morning. Um, it got late last night. And uh, I did put out a heads up for Sacramento County in California. They are talking about an all-out flavor ban. Um, so heads up on that if you want to get started on talking to your representatives in Sacramento County. If it goes any further, we will keep an eye on it. And um, Alex will do his magic. And that's oh, so, it. so that's what we've, <clears throat> excuse me. So that's what we've got for legislation this week, huh? Uh, I wanted to really quick, just as kind of a technical thing or whatever, remind uh, people sending out emails through CASA. Like Alex said, it's a great idea. Please personalize them, include your story. Um, and when you do that, put it above. If you're going to keep uh, the pre-written stuff from us, put your personalized message above that. A lot of times when 
these these email folders get a lot of messages that are all the same in the beginning. Uh, they tend to get filtered into a spam folder. Uh, we want all those emails to go right to them, <clears throat> excuse me, right to their inbox. Uh, so personalize it above the message if you keep it. There we go. That's all I wanted to throw in there. I just want to make sure those emails go into the inbox and not the spam folder where they oh, have a much advice. better likelihood of being read. Very good advice. All right. If uh, if we are ready, we have a special guest with us this week that we uh, we are ready to bring on board. Is everybody here ready? I think he's in the back right now. He looks pretty ready. Yeah. All right. He's signaling to us like this that he's ready. So I think we'll bring him in. Uh, yeah, we'll bring him in for the take three this week. Let's do the thing. Jacob. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Uh, for folks who are not uh, familiar with Jacob Greer, uh, he's a journalist, author, um, and I don't know what the right word here is, spirit aficionado. Uh, yeah. I, don't, I don't know how to describe my job either. So we're drink well, master. Uh, but yes, welcome. Thank you for yeah. joining us this week. Yeah, it's awesome to be on. Thanks for the invitation. Yes, absolutely. We have much to discuss uh for folks who are really familiar with our programming here typically when we do take threes it's chris and i and alex and we each take separate articles that have come out over the past week or so and we break them down give a synopsis and give our opinions on it but this week we kind of have just one general focus we really wanted to get jacob in here for it and that is the marketing authorization for the views solo definitely yeah so unlike last week's episode we didn't decide who was going to go first right i, I assumed it was going to be you alex because you're the most so i fall i fall back on Kristen for this lately because she's been like <laughs> in the chat like okay so i think you should go first and then you go second, and we'll have you go last so we can segue into the and she's been right on it and i was like i had it in my head did you guys not really you know <sighs> you're supposed to i'm a woman you're supposed to be able to read my mind remember? supposed to be able to read your mind <laughs> i'm the real guy i'm not the I left yeah. my I mind reading device in my other one? pants. So, Alex, go ahead. Why don't you? Leave okay, I'll this? do it. Because I, I haven't put a whole lot of thought into this, but I do have a. Uh, I'll start off my take with a, with a little bit of uh, chart magic. Everybody loves charts. Um, since we always talk about you know bad news for vaping usually means good news for tobacco companies. Um, this past week we had good news for vaping that turned out to be the best news for a tobacco company. Um, and that, of course, is uh, BAT, British American Tobacco stock price. Uh, it went up a whole two dollars, um, which is significant considering this is, you know, a thirty thirty-five dollar stock. Um, but this is this is the day after the announcement. I believe conveniently, uh, the announcement came after the market close on uh, the twelfth. So um, here you have. Uh, a little bit of indecision at the close and then pre-market, boom, they're going to sell all of that like hotcakes. Um, so good news for BAT, uh, in, and which Reynolds is, a, I believe, the appropriate way to say that is a wholly owned subsidiary of British American Tobacco, tobacco subsidiary. Um, uh, and so there's that. The other part of my take here um, involves a bit of a we told you so moment. 
Um, this is from our, this is from Kassaz's comment. Thank you, Dr. Carl Phillips, for all of the work that went into this seven years ago. Um, this is from Kassaz's comment to FDA on the deeming regulation that was the proposed, the draft rule that was published in 2014 and open for everybody's comments. Uh, and Kristen told me that I should read all of this. So here we go. Um, this is on page five, and you can find this. I linked to our timeline and gave you all the information you need to scroll down and find this. Just go down to August of 2014. Casa comment filed August 7th, 2014. Everybody, all the other organizations that filed comment are also in this. Thank you, Kristen, for putting all of the work into our timeline. It is very detailed. Um, and so, uh, Section 3.2 in our comment, nothing would be done to reduce access to e-cigarettes to minors or their alleged appeal to minors. Um, the proposed regulations would deny the realistic possibility of FDA approval to any e-cigarette products other than the mass-produced, mass-production sigalikes that are widely available in convenience stores and similar outlets. Ta-da! However, unless there is a secret plan to never grant any approvals at all, this means that products most likely to be tried by minors because they require minimal financial or knowledge investment are widely available from the same sources that supply the cigarettes that minors have little difficulty obtaining and are easy to conceal, will remain on the market. Meanwhile, black and shadow markets for other e-cigarette products will exist and be less regulated than they are now, almost certainly lowering barriers to access by minors. FDA touts a ban on free samples as stopping access by minors, but there is no reason to believe that e-cigarettes are being proved, provided as free samples to minors or ever will. Unlike individual cigarettes, they are too expensive to be handing out to people who are not likely customers, which uh, that actually was a bit wrong because we saw, I think Jewel's campaign was either supplying people with pups or devices. Um, so, you know, we're, we're a little 50-50 on this one here. Um, there are clear signals that clear signals in the regulation that FDA is looking for an excuse to ban most e-cigarette flavors based on denying minors access to these, but flavored products will be ready, readily available in the black and shadow markets. Thus, even setting aside the question of whether adult choices should be limited by overblown and unsubstantiated worries about children being attracted by e-cigarette flavors, there is nothing in these regulations that would serve that goal of protecting children. Um, so that is um, part of my take is really just kind of restating Kassa's position on this and also noting, I, Jacob, the fortuitous that we have you here, um, noting my uh, comment to um, uh, your attorney general on Twitter, I think she was lamenting the approval, the authorization of, uh, of views. And uh, of course, the, I think the only appropriate response to that is, why are you so angry? This was all part of the plan. Um, and and it, it further serves to cement incumbent tobacco companies' uh, market position while uh, kneecapping the independent vapor industry that made it possible for them to sell their products. So that's my take. <laughs> oh, I guess I should, I should also be, I, I think, somewhat appreciative of the fact that uh, we do have at least one product on the market legally, and this is, I, I mean, I don't want to, this can't, I, I, I'm, I'm just not, I'm not going to poo-poo, you know, DAT for getting across the line. 
They invested the money. They got their application in early. This is a safer nicotine product, and I want to see it on convenience store shelves all across the country. Um, and so this is, you know, this is part of taking advantage of that infrastructure that tobacco companies have and getting these products in front of eyeballs and for, for of people who smoke. So, Alex, when was it that they got that in? You said like 20... September of 2019 is when they submitted that PMTA. I believe it was September 2019. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that PMTA went in for a while. And if you, if you want to get into that too, I mean, it's now October. When did that was this month? It was just last week. Time is irrelevant for me. So um, two years, over two years uh, for that authorization from the time they submitted that PMTA. Which that's is still on, that's, that's on par than, for FDA. Yeah, I it's mean it's still quicker early. than the uh, the ICOS though, right? That was three, yeah. I believe, took three years for that. So, you know, just I guess to put some of that into perspective, when it comes to uh, it took us took FDA over two years to approve the views solo authorized authorized <laughs> yes approve authorized <laughs> authorized is the correct term here. A lot of people are saying approve for sure. Yep. Yeah. And wait, show the, let me, does everybody know what that looks like? I mean, a lot of people are confusing it. Let me pull that up. The views Alto. Yeah. Let me, no, not there. They confuse it with the Alto, but it's the solo that was approved. I have an Alto. The Alto is the one that was so popular. And uh, I went looking for it. Is it the, it's the, it's the cover for our. um, Yeah. That's what I'm pulling up right now. So I got it. I beat you. Yeah. Oh, you I went me. looking uh, at three stores in my town for a view solo. Not a one in sight. <laughs> Nowhere to be found. Yeah, I think like, didn't like Grim Green do the same thing? He was trying to find one too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and it's just funny because it's just such a flashback. I, I'll, I'll, I'll run into my take, I guess, since I'm... The, I think a good starting point from that is the text that I got from my son my 28 year old son when uh when this happened he texted me a screenshot of of uh the news saying fda authorized first e-cigarettes and he said what do we think of this <laughs> and i said it's a good thing in that the fda has acknowledged e-cigarettes can be good for the protection of public health but the fact that the first and only authorized vapor product is an outdated and i put in parentheses the image shown the one in his the image that they showed us or that he showed that I, I can't open it. They showed the Alto in the in the news piece. So mm. and I said that image is not the one that was approved um, is unpopular and only in tobacco flavor. That's ridiculous. The company also submitted non tobacco flavors, but those were rejected outright. FDA insists any flavor that's not tobacco cannot possibly have benefits that outweigh unspecified risks to youth. It's I'll say BS. <laughs> At the same time, anti-vaping folks are pissed it was approved and claim it's horrible for public health because the children, even though it's not a device or flavor teens ever use, but having any vape authorized by the FDA is pretty much a historical event. And he said, that's about how I expected you to respond. (laughs) (laughs) And then I shared with him the picture of the actual solo um, from on there. And I said, this is a view solo. He's like, oh, WTF. Ha ha ha. Yeah. You welcome know? back to 2010. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Welcome back to 2010. You know? And so even I'm like, yeah, it's a single, like a tech that peaked 10 years ago. Um, okay. I mean, my first instinct when it comes to the view solo is like, 
this community is going to mod that view solo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I think I mean, it's 2010 all over again. Exactly. I mean, we're, gonna, we're all going to go out and buy a view solo and drill like holes long. through the carts. And like... Yeah. And, and then that's the thing is that people who are poo pooing it have to remember this is what a lot of us started with. You yeah. know, I had I had a 510, Enjoy 510, and the views is essentially the same thing. And the other thing I kind of wanted to put in. I'm seeing a lot of advocates sort of pushing the anti-propaganda, um, and you guys got to quit that. Um, and I don't think you realize you're doing it, but you are. You know, as soon as you start saying, "Oh, a tobacco e-cig is bad," guys, it's essentially the same technology we're using. So if theirs is bad, so is ours. Stop saying that. Secondly, the whole thing about the nicotine being high nicotine, um, it's. It, yes, it is, but it's a cigalite. This is not like hitting um, a baby beast with 48 milligrams or your 4.8, whatever it is. Four, it's 48, Even right? That's yeah. quite the dated coil there, Kristen. Well, <laughs> look at what I use. Come on. I am not a device <laughs> person. Um, it works. That's what I use. I got my flavor. I'm happy. Um, and a lot of people feel that way about the view solo. So, I mean, I doubt it's millions, but they are. Um, so, you guys stop pushing that the same um this that ants rhetoric of oh high nicotine's horrible oh this you know kids use this it, it was something like 10% of kids who vape use the views and the views it was the views also not the views solo so I, I see advocates and vapors out there saying why did they approve something that's that's popular with kids and you guys that's that's a narrative wrong don't go down that road. Please stop that. You guys are just supporting ants propaganda by saying that crap. This is a good thing. And I mean, it's a bad thing in some ways, but it's a good thing is that this is a historic event. I mean, there was a time way back when that those of us have been doing this since 2009 thought maybe nothing would ever get approved, you know, but they just figure out a way to ban them all. So <clears throat> this is still good in a lot of ways. It, it, I mean, it is. It, yes, would it, we love it if it had been you know, a, a popular one that modders like to use, obviously, but it's taking baby steps. And this is, this is huge. And that's my, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to uh, give the floor to Jacob here in just a second for his take on all this. I'll, I'll go last, but before, before I do that really quick for anybody out there with the, the concerns about high nicotine and things, um, please put those aside. But one of the big things to remember about devices like this is that they're so low powered. Uh, so in order for that high nicotine to, to even really be effective, like that's the only way this device is actually like effective. It has to have that higher milligram because it has such a low power because the, the vapor output on it is so, so much less than maybe what some folks are out there used to using, um, you know, with, with higher wattage devices and, and bigger clouds and things like that. You really need to compensate for that by having that higher nicotine with such a low powered device. So I just want to throw that out there, but I'm, I'm just dying to hear uh, Jacob's take on, on all of this. So the floor is yours, sir. All right. Thanks for letting me on. Uh, well, I'll say I endorse everything we've said so far. So there's not going to be any disagreement uh, from me coming on that. Um, I think one thing maybe worth hitting on is just the uh, potentially smart media strategy that the FDA I assume thought of uh, in approving the views as their first one. Uh, I assume it wasn't purely based on the merits and that there was some 
uh, press having this involved in that, which is that, you know, as soon as they approve one, there's going to be a flood of stories about it, which we saw. And the fact that it's this clunky views that you know, other than vapors, you know, most people don't even know what that is. And among vapors, we don't even take it seriously. Uh, so it's a good way to gauge the public opinion. And there's not going to be big news stories every time uh, that the FDA approves something. Uh, and we saw how bad it was, how bad the reaction was to this, even with the views. So like, imagine if they had approved Juul first. Like there was no way that was going to happen. Mango, first one out of the gate. <laughs> right. It, it would have been doomed. The reaction would have been so over the top. So, I mean, if there's a, you will go into my take later, but we all know that I think that tons and tons of e-cigarettes should be approved. I don't think we should be doing this process at all. But uh, the fact that we got one through is significant and that it's one that's probably not going to get uh, as big a media blowback as some other one would is, is probably smart from the FDA's perspective. So I will grant them that. Uh, and I guess if we're going to do uh, if we're going to do victory laps, I'll, Alex, you, you gave your prediction. Uh, so I've got my prediction from my book from uh, 2019. So uh, I, had a, I had one relevant passage on this. I said, um, the cost and uncertainties inherent in compliance may be too much for small vapor companies to bear. Driving out the independent businesses that built the market for vaping products from the bottom up and clearing the field for only the largest and most well-funded companies, including those affiliated with big tobacco. Uh, so I'm not happy about it, but I, I'll claim some vindication mm -hmm. on, on that unfolding the way I expected it to. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think uh, so many of us share that shared that prediction that you know when you just look at the cost of what this process is, uh, not you know from FDA directly, but the cost of all the science, the cost of of getting everything uh, submitted for for one PMTA. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, incumbent tobacco companies have that that financial backing to to get through that process. Um, they're at least better happen. equipped to do so than your average small e-liquid manufacturer, mom and pop kind of business. Yeah, and it's amazing going back to their initial uh, regulatory impact estimate from I think it was 2014 when they said they anticipated getting 20 to 80 e-cigarette applications in the first two years. Yeah, yeah. But, only off by six million. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was pretty close. They were close. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I think a lot of those applications. I guess I don't really know what to how to exactly put this, but it's it was almost more like shock value, really, for the FDA, right? Like there, I think there were a lot of companies kind of putting out applications that they knew were not complete. Hopefully they could get through them down the road, but like get as many in as possible for that, that shock that, Oh, you thought you were only going to get 20. Here's six and a half million. You know, well, I, I, I don't, I don't entirely disagree with that, but there was also advice from, you know, some, some of the voices in tobacco control who tend to, you know, are, are by and large dismissive of the idea that this is intentionally a hurdle um, for innovation uh, or barrier to in innovation. And I remember, I think it was at e-cigarette summit in DC several years ago. I want to say it was Eric Lindblom, uh, was on a panel and his, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. He didn't actually say this, but it was, you know, his advice to manufacturers, small manufacturers was, you know, I don't care if you like write your application down on a bar napkin and, and send it in, like whatever you've got, send it in. Yeah. And I think there were a lot of the smaller manu manufacturers, especially, you know, folks in the, uh, you know, Amanda Wheeler and, and Char Owens group 
These were people who who did not, these are companies that did not necessarily have the means to produce a fully, you know, complete, robust application, but right. went into the process with the expectation that, you know, Office of Small Business or whatever it is within CTP would, to some extent, sort of handhold them through the process. Uh, and that there, well, there would was be, kind of that communication back and forth initially, right? Where FDA was was telling manufacturers, you know, if you submit and there's things that are missing that we're going to we're going to work with you, okay. there's going to be this back and forth. There's going to be some kind of um, not necessarily assistance, but clarification along the way or or something like that as well. And I don't know as though a lot of manufacturers uh, got that from FDA, but I just want to, I'm seeing a lot of this, not just with this comment here from the Omi Bambino. Uh, he says they are feeding us crumbs and people sound like they're happy. It's BS. And he's not the only one that I've heard people say that for They're They're upset that of what got approved and, and why all these other things got denied. And it's important to remember, like Alex said, they had their application in, in September and, and I'm sorry, Logan confirmed it was September, 2019. That's way ahead of everybody else. So they got in there very early. They have a very simple device. They have a closed system. They have just tobacco flavor. I mean, they did have other stuff that they submitted and their flavors did get denied. They got MDO. So it's not like they got everything approved and all yeah. the small businesses got thrown to the side. They got pretty much what we thought was going to be approved first. Now, I didn't think, I, I honestly did think it would be a pod, not a Cardo e sig like but or sig like but but it's still something very simple, closed system, tobacco flavor um, from a big company. They pretty much said that they were going to do those, the, that most of the approvals were going to come from the big companies first, the, based the, on market the largest share. market share. So this whole conspiracy theory thing, yeah, there's some underhand stuff that's gone on over the years, and I don't blame you for thinking that, but there really is a lot of things that led to this, and this is not surprising those of us who have been following this and and working on this for many years um this this is like i put up with some of the other comments this is a foot in the door this is something that's still huge and if you watch the anti um nicotine and tobacco people are fuming i mean oh that was unintended pun but <laughs> but they're they're really upset and it just goes to show that it has you know they're this whole oh we don't like flavors flavors of the thing it's all jewel's fault it's all flavors it's something that i've said for years is that jewel and flavors are just scapegoats if it wasn't for those it would be something else they'd be going after and now you're seeing that exactly right now they're going after a sig alike in tobacco flavor it doesn't look like a watch it's not hidden in a hoodie it doesn't look like a, a usb thing it looks like a sig alike and it's it's not cool it's not the latest tech and it's in tobacco flavor. And yet they're acting like it's a unicorn poop flavored, you know, yeah. hoodie vape. Yeah. And we're not going to have cloud comps with the views solo. Yeah. So we don't have to oh, worry oh, about that. That will happen. That oh, yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe after we drill out the airflow holes. We're going to have to. <laughs> hook it up so to a keep car that in mind. I mean, wattage out of that thing but yeah. so this is proving a lot of what we've been saying for a lot of times that it has nothing to do with saving the children from flavors um and you know it's not a a, a backdoor deal with big tobacco to get in that in with their product first that happened back in 2009 okay i mean we've talked about the tobacco act um 
so th this is this is just what what we expected but it is still huge if you if like if you were around back in 2010 it was pretty up in the air whether or not anything would ever get approved or authorized by the fda as as you know and this does it puts a foot in the door for a lot of other products and it's it, it it's promising so that is why it's still a good thing in a lot of our our eyes because it's it's because of that it, it, they were never going to prove a mango jewel first thing on the block i mean the, the the ants would have lost their collective minds you know i i, I want to kind of dovetail on on a point you're making here, I think, and and where I was just inspired by, you know, noting that this is this is you know 2010 tech. I, I don't care how, you know, the the liquid formulation has changed or whatever the power is. Like Sigalikes were our our introduction, our proof of concept that these products would be a a, a viable substitution for for cigarettes. Um, you know, last week I went on some rant about uh, Reynolds suing Altria for patent infringement about the Icos and Glow. And uh, fortunately, someone sort of corrected my assessment of the situation. I will say, to my, to, in my defense, I did put my conspiracy theory hat on first. So just take that as you will. Um, but we watched you know, him do it. We sat right here. He put I, the I, hat I, on, and then he I went right in. Um, but uh, and as it was pointed out to me, one of the reasons why we don't have Glow in the United States, um, but instead we have. A, a, a substantial equivalency for Eclipse uh, is that Reynolds or BAT's strategy for bringing a heat not burn product to market here is to go through the substantial equivalency pathway, which is, I, I don't know exactly how much more efficient or uh, from a cost perspective, if that's, if that's again, efficient, um, but it is a legitimate pathway. And when you think about it, if it, I, I know that I was, I'm one of probably I don't know, maybe a million people in the country who have actually smoked or, or used an, an Eclipse. Um, I was in, I lived in one of the test markets, Chattanooga, Tennessee, when, when it was out. And uh, it is, it's a pretty awful product. Uh, you have to light it with a lighter. You don't really light it, but you heat up the, the kind of carbon element. And that's your, your heat source that then, you know, vaporizes the, the tobacco inside. Um, it generates an enormous amount of waste. It tastes like a wet dog fart. And um, uh, it's it's not you know at the time it was like, you know I'll, I'll take my American spirits any day over this eclipse nonsense, um, but when you get right down to it, fundamentally there's there's not much, the only difference between an eclipse cigarette and a glow heat not burn device is the power source. For eclipse, it's a lighter. For the glow, it's a battery. But fundamentally, they're the same thing. So it kind of makes sense that they go through the substantial equivalency pathway. And this whole patent infringement thing did not start in the United States. It started, I don't know if it was Europe or Japan or, or wherever. It started in other places. So this is a battle that's been going on and off. Uh, and I, I don't know, it doesn't matter who started it. This is just how big companies, you know, duke it out in the marketplace and in the courts to make sure that they preserve their IP and their market share and so on. So. All of that having been said, it is entirely likely that since Reynolds has gotten views over the finish line, this now opens up the possibility for them to use substantial equivalency to bring more interesting products that more people are, are going to buy and more people who smoke are going to switch to. Um, so that's that's another, I think, aspect of this that is really good news. Uh, and I it's hope- It's actually something I hadn't even considered uh 
with these the substantial equivalency. I mean, this this was something that everybody was talking about when the deeming rule dropped. Was yeah. you know, FDA noted at the time that you know, well, we managed to find one product that was on the market prior to February fifteenth, two thousand seven. It's some crappy e-cigar that you know wasn't very popular then. Uh, and of course, it's all of that was outdated. You long know, gone now. Yeah, long yeah. time ago. But you know, the idea that some predicate product exists out there. Uh, has been on a lot of people's minds. It's just how how many times do you have to go through SE before you get us up to open systems, or do you, can you even get to that point? Um, but anyway, all of that, you know, there is a strategy I think at work here, um, and other people in the in the chat have mentioned, uh, you know, bridging, uh, being able to link to other companies' research that's out there, uh, and and in support of your own applications. Um, so this this is I mean, this is the very, very, very beginning of all of this. And uh, it definitely is positive news. And I just want to as a segue into our deep dive, I just want to reiterate that this whole thing when watching these anti vaping, anti tobacco, anti nicotine, um, they their objection to this being so strong it just goes to show you it has nothing to do with the, about the kids it has to do with controlling our behavior and it has to and they know what's best for us they they don't want us to be able to enjoy tobacco to enjoy nicotine it either has to be some kind of medicine or illicit i guess or harmful in some way and um that's something that jacob's article got our attention with when he was talking about, well, actually, I think it was more the, I don't know if it was the article or the book. I read them both at the same time. So I've got to get them mixed up. But um, I think this is a good segue to go into our deep dive with Jacob and talk about his book and, and his viewpoint on the whole thing with flavors and and their control over that. So I don't know if you want to do their, our deep dive, Logan. Let's do it. Are you ready? Let's, we'll we'll do the thing. Let's do the thing. Jacob is our deep dive. And <laughs> himself Bring it on. <laughs> is our deep dive. I asked him earlier if he was ready for us to dive deep, and he said he <laughs> thought he was ready. So, um, ready so I know Alex has uh, some, some very relevant questions for you, uh, I think, right out of the gate. And then, and then possibly we can build off of that. Um, first, Right out of the gate, though, before we do any of that, I just want to thank you for writing such a fantastic book. Um, it is filled with relevant information for anybody uh, who is in this fight or who's an advocate. If, you, if people out there have not read The Rediscovery of Tobacco and The Creative Destruction of the Cigarette, it is a phenomenal read. But I will also say that there is no introduction to a book that may make you want a cigar more. Um, I am somebody who does still occasionally enjoy a nice cigar, whether it's at like a wedding or an event or something like that. I have a few cigars a year and that's it. And when I bought this book and I got through the introduction, the next day I went out and I bought a cigar and I was like, damn it, Jacob. And I, I blame you completely for that cigar. It was fantastic. But don't say uh, you yeah. can ban my book now. Don't tell people. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but it, this is, it is truly a phenomenal book for anybody out there. Um, who's interested in it. I'm sure there's plenty of places and we can talk to Jake about, about where people can go to buy this book so he can benefit from it uh, the best. But 
but I'll give the floor to Alex because I know he has questions. I just wanted to thank you for writing such a fantastic book right out of the gate. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, I, thanks for putting me on the spot, Logan. Um, well, how, about we start, how about we start <laughs> off with questions about Jacob? Like, how did you get into writing about tobacco and why did you write this book? And let's start off with that. I mean, I, I we first came across you. I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but we used to share a lot of your, we still do. I mean, when it, um, but we share a lot of your links to your articles. And, and when you first started writing about this, I remember going, oh my god a reasonable journalist where did this guy come from you know and um uh i don't i don't know if i see it much as far as articles as much i think from you about this stuff lately but um but yeah we still share a lot of them so let's let's start with that what did you how did you get into the whole tobacco harm reduction because this would be like pre-book i would think right right and yeah yeah, yeah, and not, and not as many articles lately, in, in part because I thought by writing the book, I could be done writing about this. And then uh, it turned out not to be the case. Turns out there's always more to write about, even when you think you've, you've covered everything you want to say, uh, largely thanks to government. If, if we didn't have the FDA in the way, I probably would be done. Uh, but yeah, so I've got a different background, I think, than most, most of us in the uh, harm reduction space in that I don't vape. Uh, I, I can probably count on one hand, you know, the number of times I've taken a puff off of uh, any cigarette of any kind. So I think they're really interesting. Uh, but I come to it from a cigar background. And I'm not a frequent smoker. I don't do it all the time. Uh, but I work in the food and drink world and uh, love coffee. And that was kind of my entrance uh, into cigars was realizing that a, a, a good friend of mine, or he became a good friend, but he was a customer at the time uh, when I worked in a coffee shop. Uh, talked about his cigars the same way I thought about coffee. And so we were both very passionate about the things that we liked and we're uh, pushing back against, uh, you know, in coffee, you know, we were we were fighting against Starbucks and Folders and mass market coffee and trying to make people realize this is this amazing artisanal product with different flavors and different styles from around the world. And he was doing the same thing with tobacco. You know, I, I saw him smoke a cigar outside the coffee shop and I thought, you know, what's with this guy? This guy has great taste. Why is he smoking this filthy cigar? And uh, we got to talking about it. And he, you know, I, I won't say he got me hooked, but he got me to, uh, to try one. And, uh, you know, he took me to the cigar shop. We picked one out. Uh, and then it just became kind of a, a way that we, he and I would get together pretty regularly. Uh, so I really came to just enjoy cigars as an occasional treat. Uh, unfortunately, this was happening, uh, this was about 2004, 2005. Uh, so probably 2005. So it was when Michael Bloomberg was passing the smoking ban in New York City. And then that was spreading down to Washington, D.C., which is where I was living and working in that area at the time. Uh, they're technically in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, and then even Arlington, Virginia passed, a, or Virginia passed a statewide smoking ban, which was you know shocking if you think about it from 20 years ago, you know, <laughs> one of the biggest tobacco states. Um, so yeah, I got into tobacco regulation because I was uh, one, just getting into tobacco as a consumer and enjoying it. And at the same time, I was working uh, in Washington, D.C. in sort of uh, the libertarian policy circles. So I was doing a little bit of writing for Reason Magazine. I was going to libertarian events. Uh, I interned at the Cato Institute. Um, and so I, I kind of had one foot in policy, one foot in the food and drink world. And by seeing the way that, you know, cigar freedoms are getting tamped down and smoking in general, uh, that got me into it in the policy in the policy direction, and then um, 
you know, looking at the science behind it, which initially, I, you know, I didn't really question it. You know, you know, I would read about smoking bans and the science of secondhand smoke, and I just kind of accepted whatever I, whatever I read, you know, from scientific papers or in the news. And then started digging into it more and realized that it was just incredibly low standards and alarmist crap being published that just had no basis in reality, which is not to say there's nothing that could be said about secondhand smoke, but just the most outrageous thing for getting reported. Uh, and so that got me digging into it and seeing the seeing how these anti-smoking groups were, you know, abusing science and suppressing dissent within the field uh, to create this really alarmist vision of secondhand smoke. Uh, so if you want to go fast forward then to uh, when vaping came on the scene, I just saw the same pattern repeating. And even though I'm no longer personally invested in it, you know, every e-cigarette could get banned, and I think that would be a tragedy, but it would not affect me in the least. But I was seeing the same the same pattern repeat of just bad science and alarmism being used to justify these bans. And so it was just a very natural transition for me to get into that. I, I have a I have a question since I yeah. now that I understand now that I know that you were in DC in the mid two thousands. Um, did you ever have an opportunity to hop up to Lancaster, Lancaster City in, in Pennsylvania and visit Demuth's? I didn't. That probably would have been awesome, but uh, no. I that was I, I. I lived. I lived in Lancaster in, for in those years, and I had my whole body in the beverage world. Um, okay. That's a different story. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it ended up in a four-month stay in rehab. Um, but uh, Demuth's was the. That was my first exposure to you know a tobacco shop. I used to buy. Uh, the loose uh, kite menthol when I was very poor. And actually I was also, it was, it was a step up from picking cigarette butts out of ashtrays. Um, but uh, it, I believe that is America's oldest or was America's oldest uh, tobacco shop. And um, certainly uh, that, that, that was my sort of, you know, when I saw a vape shop, I was like, Oh, this is just like Demuth's. This is a tobacco shop. It's people hanging out, talking, you know, garbage to each other or whatever. Um, you know, unfortunately, Demuth was also apparently accused of like ripping off blind people. Um, <laughs> you know, give and take, but anyway, I was I was curious about that if you if you had gotten up there. Nope, right now. Sounds sounds like a really interesting place, though. Yeah, it's I think it's turned into a, it's a museum now. So there's the Demuth Foundation or Demuth Museum. Demuth Charles Demuth was an artist um, as well. So strongly recommend checking out a little Lancaster County early American history. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I knew some of kind of the the alarmism around secondhand smoke and, and thirdhand smoke, but I did not know nearly as much as I learned from you in your book. Uh, and when you go into a lot of the science behind that and how it's just really kind of all teetering on really shaky grounds uh, and there's not a whole lot to back it up. But then there's a few studies that kind of maybe show something and they get they get blown out of proportion the media runs with it and this is a tale as as old as time with media um so for a lot of people working in other spaces i don't know how they don't see this and go oh yeah no we should dig into that more yeah there's very little curiosity about it and no we, just, we take it at face value because we know for certain that firsthand smoke uh, does cause a number of problems over time, a number of different diseases, um, and and kills a lot of people around the world. And so when we we hear things about secondhand smoke or whatever, I think it's easy for so many people to just kind of take that at face value, and we go, oh, well, we know smoking's bad, so you know, 
being anywhere in the vicinity of someone who smokes must also be equally tragic. And it's, it's not. Yeah. I think a big part of it too, is that a lot of journalists are still in a 1980s or 1990s mindset when they think about the relationship between health groups and tobacco companies. And, you know, if you were a journalist in the eighties or the nineties, and your mental model was the tobacco company is going to lie every single time in the most outrageous way possible. And the scientist is going to tell me the truth. That was a pretty good model. That was accurate up until the early 2000s. Uh, but then, yeah, they, I don't think they've really internalized how much that changed after the master settlement agreement, when the tobacco companies decided that it was actually more in their interest uh, to realize that they can't fight off regulation forever. They can't have always the fear laissez-faire, so they need to make uh, the best deal they can with regulation. Uh, and so then you, one, the tobacco companies stopped uh, fighting back as much. And then two, all these health groups got extremely well-funded from the MSA funds and then from other donations and just went completely off the deep end with what they were willing to put out there with some of these secondhand smoke claims. Uh, so it's, it's taken all this time to even have a, a glimmer of, of journalists realizing uh, that the, the dynamic has changed and that you actually can get, you know, good science from tobacco companies and that you actually should be skeptical uh, from what some of these prohibitionist groups, you know, funded by Michael Bloomberg are saying all the time. So, you know, I think uh, Mark Gunther is a great example of this, who, who recently started writing about tobacco. And I'm so glad that he is because he's one of the first more mainstream journalists, I think, to pick up on this and let that get that coverage out there into other publications. But yeah, absolutely. Most part, you don't see it. And I think that's something uh, to kind of piggyback off of Kristen earlier, um, you know, with a lot of health groups and and groups that are essentially prohibitionist groups against nicotine or, or very strongly against nicotine in general, uh, that I think a lot of them are just very much stuck in that big tobacco bad. Fight big tobacco, tear down big tobacco at all costs, regardless of the products they make, regardless of any, uh, you know, safer nicotine products that come out. It's just very much... Like that's the crusade and the crusade is not over until they all fall. And I think that's, I think that's one of the driving factors behind, you know, we're even, we're seeing groups that were just focused so solely on the flavors, the flavors of the driving point, the flavors are what hook kids, yada, yada, yada. And then when we have a PMTA get approved, get, you know, that this product is authorized for, for marketing, that's a SIGA like in only tobacco. And we're still seeing that same pushback against it. You know, it, it kind of brings to, you know, brings to the surface that maybe this isn't so much about flavors. Maybe this is, is still that, that same old crusade of tearing down incumbent tobacco companies. I, uh, this, maybe this goes into the, the first part. I have a two part question. This is really the only, I think, serious. Well, I, I wrote down, it's a two, I wrote three, three serious questions here because I'm bad at asking questions sometimes. Should I be nervous? No, no, no. Well, I, I part of it is, uh, you know, I, I think taking, taking the devil, I have to play the devil's advocate to some yeah. extent, which I hope you, you are prepared for as a journalist. Um, so, um, but I, 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 for some reason I have, the the last chapter in your book bookmarked um i don't know if it's because that's where i left off reading or if i just wanted to come back to it it's the the end game and um uh, i i i very much appreciate having the language to kind of put this in you have the the, the technocrats versus uh the the liberals uh or the um 
there was another word you used. Uh, I'm sorry. Dynamist. 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 Yeah, exactly. Um, which I think uh, you know you, you definitely reference that a lot in this this article that was published in Liberal Currents. Um, so uh, I, you know we are on we are all I think on the dynamist side here is is give people options, allow these things to exist, and people will will choose them because they are better products. Um, but the the question here is. Uh, you know, if innovations in uh, nicotine and drugs space um, aren't managed from the top down, don't we run the risk of allowing powerful manufacturers to gobble up all of the market share and introduce products that are more harmful, risky, addictive, et cetera? Like, don't we need, don't we need the overseers? Ooh, that is a tough question. <laughs> I like that you turned it on me. Yeah, I mean, that, that's obviously the way people think it works, you know, you can have an ideal model, which is that you know the FDA or whoever your your regulators in charge are, are are going to keep the most dangerous things off and uh, you know let the safer things on, which I think is the the conception that people have of how the FDA works. Like I remember talking to one of my my previous editors on an article that I wrote, uh, where I mentioned that the FDA didn't have control over tobacco until two thousand nine, and she was she was just shocked. She's like, what? Tobacco was just unregulated. Like, how could that be? <laughs> and and that was the case. Uh, and so the question is, you know, did regulation actually improve anything? And if you look at you know the ten years that we've now had of the FDA regulating things, I think it's really hard to make a case that it's been effective. And and I think one reason for that is just you know kind of overall caution of the FDA. They don't. I think the the most the, their main incentive is just to avoid having people angry at them and uh, stirring things up. So they, they've done basically, they've done essentially nothing on cigarettes uh, other than the law itself, which banned flavors other than menthol. Uh, you know, they've blocked new cigarettes coming onto the market, but it's not really clear that that's accomplished anything. Uh, I don't think anyone was going to come out with a more dangerous cigarette in the past 10 years, which has been blocked. Uh, and then they've they've taken off uh, just like the the most ridiculous items. Like there was uh, small BBs, which are kind of rolled up, you know, rustic cigars from India. Which uh, they made a big deal out of uh, telling the story about how they got these off the market in the United States. Uh, and then it turned out that the importer hadn't even been bringing them in for for a year or two. So. And then the FDA said, well, you know, but they could have, and now they can't. And, and this is their big victory. This is all they've really done. <clears throat> and then on the safer side, you know, we've seen what happened. They've, depending on how you want to count it, they've banned more than a million or six million, if you want to count these applications as, you know, legitimate <laughs> or, or meaningly different. But by any case, you know, they've banned millions of vaping products. Uh, and then on top of that, they've, uh, restricted speech as well. So even products that are approved uh, with, I think, maybe one, maybe one exception now, like nobody can actually truthfully inform consumers that they are safer than smoking. Uh, and that was, you know, a years long battle for snooze to be able to make this extremely well established claim. And, and I don't remember, Alex, is there anyone else who's even made it through that process yet? So yeah, it's well, it's two. We have ICOS, which has oh, got it's 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 a modified risk order, but it falls under modified exposure. Uh, and just to, I mean, add a, a level of detail to the the Swedish match uh, uh, MRTP, modified risk tobacco product mm -hmm. application, um, is uh, I think part of what they have what they had to do in order to get that approval um, was 
uh, tailor their marketing to existing Swedish match customers. So, you know, we, you, we can say, yeah, they can make these claims about snus being less harmful than smoking, but the target audience is sort of people who already know that. It's not like you're going to see a billboard on the highway saying, you know, you know, buy general snus, it's safer than smoking. That's that I, I so if, like if, if you put that in there, I'm sure buy, that would have been denied. So yeah. if you already buy general snus and you are a user of that product, you're going to get the newsletter now that tells you this product is safer. And like, those are the only people that are going to be told. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. And then, and then also go back to that, you know, uh, to the question of whether the technocrats are really effective. You know, we can look at what the FDA did in 2010 when e-cigarettes first started being imported into the United States. They didn't say, oh, let's look at this. Maybe these are safer. Maybe we should embrace this. They tried to ban the import. And so the only reason that we even have all this data now that has allowed us to get one product approved is that the FDA was shot down by a court, which told them they didn't have the jurisdiction to do that. So uh, I think the, the case for the technocrats being wiser than the market in, the, in this case are, are pretty slim at this point. Can you explain technocrat? I actually admit I had to look that up. So for our yeah, yeah. viewers so, and listeners. <laughs> yeah, I use the word the, that antinomist. I use them a lot in the last chapter, but... Yeah, the, the technocrat is the idea that you have uh, someone who's highly trained and specialized, you know, probably with a scientific background or whatever domain that they're working in, uh, who would, you know, be in control of an administration of some kind and whatever, whatever their field of expertise, you know, they are passing regulations and administering rules in a way that's going to bring out the maximum of social good. So if you are optimistic about government's ability to have all the relevant information about both what things are and what people's preferences are and then make those decisions, then you're going to be optimistic about technocrats. Uh, the other word is dynamist, which is not used as much, but it's from a, a really great writer that I admire named Virginia Postrel. Uh, she used to be the editor of Reason Magazine, and uh, she she wrote a book, uh, I want to say about 20 years ago now, maybe, maybe even a little longer, but it was called The Future and Its Enemies. And uh, the whole exploration of her book is how uh, advancement comes through from unpredictable means. And what you need is sort of an, an open market where people can, where products can be dynamic and new things can, can innovate, you know, kind of like Joseph Schumpeter with creative disruption, you know, back in the earlier century before, but the idea that, you know, things, you can't protect things. You can't work from the top down, uh, to have good innovation, you need the freedom to, to make changes and then undermine the existing structure. Yeah, I love the point that you made in your book about vaping coming from bottom up. Mm -hmm. I mean, that absolutely is the case. You know, we talked earlier in, in the early days here, all all folks had were Sigalikes and that, you know, they were not very good. Um, and consumers really took it upon themselves to improve these products. I mean, from the ground up, if it wasn't for consumers, small manufacturers, reviewers um, and things like that voicing their opinions, giving their thoughts on these things, or just flat out making new devices at home, um, we wouldn't have seen the groundswell of innovation that we've seen over the past decade or more. And I saw all that secondhand. Like my, my main introduction to vaping on the consumer side was actually through one of my old bosses in the restaurant industry, where the guy had you know an extremely stressful job uh, running a restaurant. And like many people in the hospitality industry, you know, lifelong cigarette smoker, 
because when, when you're working in a restaurant, the ability to step off the floor and take five minutes to smoke is <laughs> a very welcome break. So, you know, you see a lot of smoking. Uh, but yeah, and he struggled to quit and vaping is what did it for him. And yeah. so he, he would come in and like show me all the new mods that he got, and the, you know, the new flavors he found. It was, it was all online, like you said, you know, it wasn't going to a convenience store and buying the latest Sigalike. It, it was you know, much more complicated. Yeah, I mean, the the majority of flavor innovation really came from like online forums and things where people were sharing their DIY recipes or, you know, tailoring something specific to someone else. And that that community is really like what built all of it. You know, it's it's if you want to look at a, a space that is really built from the floor up, it's it's the vapor space, you know. Mm -hmm. And then the technocrats are the ones who are saying adults don't need flavors. Yeah, adults you get the views so <laughs> Making that random decision for us, you know, yeah. is that, am I kind of say, saying that right? Would you say, Jacob? Yeah, totally. And I always compare it to uh, the alcohol business, which is, you know, where I have a lot of background. And, you know, we have, we have all kinds of flavors. <laughs> Yeah. Sure. I think very much of like the 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 e-liquid space is a lot is very similar to like the craft beer space. Um, there are so many a lot of them have gone to the wayside now. But at one point there were a lot of craft e-liquid companies mm -hmm. um, that were using, you know, I don't want to necessarily necessarily say like higher end ingredients or things like that, but really experimenting with different flavors and putting out, you know, really unique kind of more craft products i guess than your you know 120 mils from you know a larger company that was on a shelf there are there were a lot of those companies and and i always think of like the craft beer space like they're very similar in that sense and jacob i'd love for you to kind of expand upon that because you wrote about that in your book sort of comparing tobacco um, I don't think you got so much into the vaping part of that but as far mm -hmm. as like with cigars and tobacco and pipe tobacco which um, I have to say with Logan, same thing. I wanted a cigar after reading your intro and I don't even like the smell of cigar smoke. <laughs> I'm like, maybe I'll try it. Um, my dad smoked pipe though. So I know I, I was there with you with that whole thing about the aroma of the pipe and things like that. But I'd love to hear you kind of expand on, um, it was just fascinating that, that and this is something I'm always trying to tell our, our members that why does um, vaping have to be or even tobacco use with snooze or anything like that have to be either medicinal or um, harmful. Uh, why are, can't we enjoy it? And a lot of your book is trying to make that point about, you know, nobody has a problem with all these different wonderful flavors of caffeine or all these wonderful different flavors and and the, the small, you know, of the, the of the craft beers and things like that. So. Can you expand on how you said that in your book about what you were talking about? Um, I think it's going to confuse a lot of our vapors because they're they're sort of tobacco bad, tobacco bad still. Um, but a lot of our members have understand that CASA is more about all the products that are lower risk. And so, but talk about that enjoyment factor that somehow we've gotten, everybody else is okay with that, but not for tobacco. Yeah, I mean, tobacco is totally demonized. So, and, and I think that holds us back, which was you know, the topic of my recent article, which is that we can, there was this long, long effort to just delegitimize tobacco use in any form, which, you know, before harm reduction was a viable strategy, you can at least understand where that came from. You know, if people wanted to, to end tobacco deaths, but I, I don't think it's really, you know, just or viable anymore. Um, but yeah, in the, in the book, I was comparing 
uh, what would have happened to the beer market uh, if we ran it like we now run uh, vaping or tobacco of any kind? Like, imagine if we went back 30 years before there was really any craft beer, and the only way to, to introduce a beer would be to claim substantial equivalence to Bud Light or Budweiser or Miller. <laughs> it's like, oh, you want to use all these hops? You want to have higher alcohol? We don't know if we can allow that. That's new and innovative. And so fortunately, that's not how the alcohol business works. You know, for the most part, if you are producing something in a well-established category, you can do whatever you want. You submit, uh, depending on where you're marketing it, but you submit a, a basic formula. And as long as you're not doing something really exotic, like, uh, you know, if you're using wormwood, like an absence, the FDA is going to, or the TTB is going to come in and you know, make sure there's not too much of it, or at least too much of it by their standards. But for the most part, you know, you're making gin, you're making whiskey, go wild. <laughs> as long as there's nothing here that we need to be specifically concerned about, and as long as you're within this general envelope of accepted quality and risk, uh, you're free to kind of innovate however you want. And that's what I, I think we should be doing with nicotine and tobacco. Uh, I talked about it mostly in the cigar chapter because uh, sort of the same thing that, not quite to the same level, but the same thing that vaping companies are dealing with the premium cigar industry is dealing with as well, right. uh, where you have all these, you have to go through the same pathway, whether it's substantial equivalence or, or something else, uh, for no good reason. Uh, because pretty much every cigar is, at least on the premium side, it's just leaves rolled up into a tooth. <laughs> you're varying the blend of leaves you use, you're varying the size, uh, but there's no point to do a randomized control trial on a slightly different blend or a slightly different size cigar or a different named cigar because even just you know having a new name you know counts as a new product now so I, I would like to see us go more towards that alcohol model where you just say here's a range of things and as long as you're within this range uh, and not doing anything super weird that calls attention that we need to look into this as a new health issue you should just be able to do it with pretty minimal oversight Right. Yeah, I think that's something that we we've talked about a lot is how much all of this could have been avoided with just product standards, product, you know, standards from FDA saying, hey, this is this is kind of the general realm of, of what is allowed. These are the products that are acceptable for use um, here, you know, as opposed to, you know, we need to prove that every single one of these variations of strawberry flavor and the same levels of pg vg and nicotine that they are all uh, that we need application we need the science for every one of those now we need controlled trials we need all of these things i think you know like you said like the alcohol model basically essentially like a product standard kind of model would have benefited all of this right and that's and i think we would have that except that we don't trust nicotine consumers to be consumers you know, we don't view their preferences or their desire to have these products as legitimate. Uh, yeah. And so we treat it as an addiction or as something that needs to be medicalized and, you know, taken from the top down. So, yeah, I think, you know, this is where I differ from some of our peers and uh, on the harm reduction side who you know, who do favor that top down approach. But, you know, they they don't come at this from the perspective as something that adults should enjoy or <laughs> should take. Was- like they're very uncomfortable with it. This is your book. 
I, I'm not good with highlighting things because pretty much the whole last chapter I highlighted in different <laughs> colors. But one of the things that I was looking at um, from your book, and you just touched on it, was this paragraph, and it said, and it's a short one, it says, even among some advocates of harm reduction, viewing every kind of nicotine use through the lens of addiction leads to an absurdly simple understanding of how and why people consume it. Their vision of the end game reduces centuries of complex cultural behavior to the mechanical pursuit of a single chemical in the bloodstream, as if the experience is equally satisfying whether delivered via a boring dermal patch, a mass-produced cigarette, a mango-flavored jewel, or a hand-rolled cigar aged in cedar. By pretending that the only relevant differences between these products are their health effects, they deceive themselves into believing that they can ban some and allow others without imposing significant costs on the people who enjoy them. I wanted to just jump up and cheer after I read that. I mean, it just, it's like, God, somebody who gets it. And um, if I could reach through and just hug you right now, I would. Because... <laughs> well, well, thanks for reading that, because that's way better than what I would have said off the <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, I'm definitely more of a writer than a speaker, so no, I need that time to, to structure things. But yeah, it's 100% it's it's... true, right? Like if it all just boiled down to this simplistic idea of nicotine addiction, then the nicotine patch would have solved all of this. Yeah, it would have solved that point as well. 8 million smoking yeah. deaths a year, it, you know, or related deaths a year. It, that would have, it would have been at, oh, here, you know, it's just as simple as, you, you know, you're addicted to nicotine, put this little patch on your skin, all the problems will be solved, you know, and, and you're not allowed to enjoy it. And that's the point not that, I that simple. No. Um, and a lot of that does come back to, you know, people's individual preferences and the pleasure that is associated with whether it be smoking or vaping <laughs> or, or, you know, nicotine use in general, whatever product someone uses, um, because it is a complex thing. There are sensory things involved. There are ritualistic things involved for people. Uh, there's so much more to it than just a simple chemical. Um, and yeah, that, that, that's, abso that's absolutely right. Yeah, and this is where I get frustrated too with some of our, you know, at least partial allies. Like in, in my recent article for Liberal Currents, I was critiquing Ken Warner in particular. And, you know, Ken Warner is a great ally for harm reduction. He's, you know, one of the best in the field. Uh, but I don't feel like his arguments are compelling and they don't get anywhere. And I think part of the reason why is he still frames this as a uh, top-down view that doesn't legitimize nicotine consumption. So he's just offering this prohibition light. And that's not a great selling point. You're right. And I, I make this point to our, our members a lot because we see it actual vapors and vaping advocates will constantly say, "This is if you if you don't vape, if you don't smoke, you sh if you don't smoke, you shouldn't use this product." And I want to see my get put out of business because all smoking has been eradicated. And I keep saying, "But you're just ignoring a whole segment of why people vape. You know, you're you're ignoring that new people will always be starting to use nicotine because you know today, like 200. What did they say? Like 2,000 kids a day start start smoking still." So those kids aren't just going to not do anything. If vaping products are around and cigarettes are gone, they're going to try something like that because there's there's benefits to it too. So yeah, that whole that's one of the reasons why I'm just like, yeah, he gets it because even vapors will turn around and say, you should only do this if you're already addicted. Kind of kind of cementing or confirming that that viewpoint that this is only a, like a medicinal type thing. This is only harm reduction and you shouldn't really be enjoying it unless you're enjoying it to reduce harm. That's the only way you should enjoy it. it, it 
I wish they wouldn't take that attitude. So I was very happy to see that. Was, it, was it last I, week that we, we kind of touched on on this and, and I spoke to it and kind of the, the frame of safe supply? Was that last week that we we Probably. talked about that? I yeah. think it was. And, and it's that's really the idea there that, you know, that these products are only meant for people who are currently smoking to switch on to something safer. And while I agree that these products are safer and that people who do smoke should switch to them, when we frame it only as like you that the prerequisite to using these products is first you have to harm yourself i think that's a really tragic thing um like I, this isn't just harm reduction but it's also harm prevention you know why can't we allow it to be both um instead of people first having to go through you know whether we're talking about a safe supply of drugs or we're talking about safer nicotine products why is that prerequisite first you have to risk your life and health in order to have the safer product when the safer product exists and you could avoid that by by starting with this you know i, I, didn't I mean, say there's like there's there's, there's something illogical or yeah you know i don't know unempathetic or you know incompassionate about allowing people to first start with a safer product <laughs> as opposed to hey you know Oh, you've okay. If you've smoked for 35 years, you know, and you're, you know, borderline, you're COPD, you know, you've, you're pre diabetic. Now, now you can have a safer product. Like, why is that, you know, which, which is the Australian approach, right? You have to get a sure. doctor's prescription to, to vape. Right. That was actually well, one of the other things that I, I wrote down here was, you know, did you have, have you had the opportunity to read uh, the Truth Initiative statement on harm reduction? And did you have any thoughts? Oh, I skimmed it. Uh, I didn't go. I don't remember enough about it. Uh, I remember not liking it. (laughs) (laughs) Being unimpressed. Certainly Uh, agreed. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I don't remember exactly what they said, though. Well, one of the things, since you brought up Australia and the need for a prescription, is that, uh, you know, uh, Truth Initiative would have vapor products available, but you have to go through the same uh, but basically you have to sign, you have to show photo ID and sign a logbook, just like you do with um uh, uh products that contain is it it's the fake ephedrine whatever they use oh, to make yeah. you know pseudoephedrine uh, pseudoephedrine yeah the 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 fake meth it's a okay sure <laughs> whatever it's meth i don't know what i don't know how to make drugs but <laughs> there's a lot more to it than that but okay yeah. <laughs> don't get logan started no i'm not gonna get carry on but yeah, it's it's the same thing. So, yeah, you gotta you gotta sign for it. You you're only allowed so much at a time. Yeah, you can't go buy um, pseudoephedrine in bulk from CVS. Uh, you know, you're only allowed so much of it at a time. And if you try to go back uh, too soon, they will deny you. Well, and I live in one of the states that you can't even get it without a prescription. Much yeah, less just just going there you know, to to ask for it. Yeah, I like that framing though of harm prevention. That I, I like. I think that's great framing. Or Oregon doesn't. You have to get a prescription for it. I think we're maybe the last state. Yeah. 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 Look, you think of them as being so liberal and like anti-drug war and something <laughs> that that surprises me. That honestly surprises me. Yeah. Well, that, I guess Sudafed and uh, nicotine are the two exceptions to, <laughs> to Oregon's <laughs> liberal views on drugs. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, go for it with psilocybin and mushrooms. Enjoy. Have a good time. But if you're trying to relieve yeah, your sinuses, man. we're only going to give you so much of this. Right. Yeah. It's a little absurd. Um, what, do you, what do you make of that? Of the the, the fact that there that the like the Democrats, the liberals left are would normally be embracing harm reduction. And do you think it's just that they're but they're so willing to not see it with tobacco products? What where do you think that comes from? Where is that disconnect coming from, in your opinion? I think it must be inherited from the uh, the again that '90s mindset okay. of you know, Republicans siding with big tobacco, Democrats are on the opposite side, mm -hmm. and so they can't think about it rationally as opposed to just those cultural identifications. And again, it also just comes down to the um, you know delegitimizing smoking. Like we talked about Australia being a worst case on this, and I remember going to Australia I would say four or five years ago, and going in a convenience store and just seeing the wall of uh, hideous imagery of on all the cigarette packs, you know, because they, they passed the, not just plain packaging, but plain packaging plus graphic photos of, you know, people dealing with tumors and tracheostomies and things. Yeah. And it, it's really about like dehumanizing smokers and taking about taking any degree of pleasure out of it and trying to make people just feel terrible about it. Uh, and so when you have that mindset, it's really hard to, to shift gears and find any use of nicotine acceptable. Yeah. So I have a thought on this and I'd love to hear your thoughts on my thoughts. Um, <laughs> but when it comes to when it comes to the left and, and Democrats um, in regards to drugs, there's a big focus on the social justice aspect of the drug war and the communities involved. And I think when you get to tobacco and nicotine, there's a disconnect there as people being painted as the victims of these companies of incumbent tobacco companies and of smoking. And so there's like their version of that social justice is to eliminate tobacco companies to fight the, like, that's how we're going to bring justice to people. And so they just see all of these products as those products as well. And, and there's, I just feel like there's, there's a, there's a disconnect there and like we, you get it, you know, because we don't we don't have two million plus people sitting in prison for nicotine violations. We don't spend forty eight billion dollars a year fighting a failing, you know, failing drug war against cigarettes or or thing. I guess we do spend a lot of money fighting against cigarettes, but still, I feel like there's a there's a disconnect there. What are do you do you do you see that? Do you notice yeah, that? Absolutely. On that? And I think we should add yet to both of those. Yeah, <laughs> we don't have all those people in jail for tobacco yet. Uh, <laughs> failed drug war for tobacco yet. They've been tased, but not in jail yet. Well, yeah, they yeah. were in jail for a short time <laughs> right. in Maryland. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, it, there is that disconnect, and I think it, it is. Uh, and I don't know how we would have fixed this, but we more people on the left should have gotten to know the independent vaping market. Kids I agree. So associated with Juul and with you know a few other big companies, uh, they have no conception of this whole other world of uh, independent vaping shops that have no connection to big tobacco at all. Right. And I don't know how we could have done that better, but that, Im that image never got out. I, this sort of brings me to my, my, my original. I have, a, I have a lot of friends uh, who are very, am I not on? I see, I can hear you. Okay, cool. Oh, I, I have, I, I, I have a, a, a follow-up for my, my original follow-up question. 
my original follow-up to my first question, what is? Um, <clears throat> the, uh, uh, there was a, we, we commented about this in one of our earlier episodes. Um, there was a brief but spectacular push from uh, cannabis reform folks to, um, you know, as the, the bill is written at the federal level, uh, to exclude big tobacco and big beverage from owning cannabis companies in, in pursuit of this social justice agenda and in making sure that, um, you know, people most affected by the, the drug war have early access, have the first, you know, bite at the apple to open up their own shops or grow operations and get to, you know, have carve out their piece of, of the market uh, and, and this, you know, serving as some form of reparations. Um, so, uh, Again, this is sort of in that weird kind of uh, irony, disconnect, whatever it is uh, that, you know, we're, we're, we're supporting the a legal regulated marketplace for cannabis. But again, we're these these folks in particular are supporting, again, this top down kind of policy battle in excluding certain manufacturers from the marketplace. I mean, does that, is, is that even, is, I guess the, the questions are, is, is, that a, is that a good idea? Is it even necessary? Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's, that's kind of, I was mostly interested in you know, your thoughts of that. Should we be excluding big, big tobacco and big, can, big beverage from getting in on the cannabis space? Or, you know, is there enough uh, potential for, for small independent businesses to carve out their regional bits of market share and, and for, for people, you know, affected by the drug war to, to ultimately benefit in some way, regardless of whether or not we, you know, through statute, exclude these bigger companies. Ooh, yeah, that's a good question. And I'll be the first to say, I don't know enough about cannabis market, despite living in Oregon. <laughs> I'm a bad Oregonian. <laughs> You're not all experts in Oregon? What's that? You're not all experts in Oregon. I can't. No, I'm, a, I'm a terrible representative. I'm in Wisconsin. I'm not a beer expert. So, you know. yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't know what to make of it. I mean, I, I generally favor open, open markets. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how effective that would be. I mean, uh, like in Oregon, for example, I don't get the impression that I know we've kept out big companies, but I don't know if we've ended up rewarding the right people either. It seems more like uh, luck of the draw to some extent. Yeah, and I know we've had issues with, with regulation there too. Like uh, an acquaintance of mine, his wife runs a company that I know just got hit like really hard, like had to spend close to $100,000 in legal fees to, to get some of her products in. So hmm. uh, with a very managed market, I know it can still be really difficult. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, we had a discussion a while ago about um, just the idea of incumbent tobacco companies being in, the harm reduction, tobacco harm reduction, vapor space uh, in general. And, you know, one of the biggest arguments there, at least in regards to harm reduction, is that those companies are the best equipped and positioned to get their products out to the most people as quickly as possible. And I, I struggle, like, is that even a viable thought when you're talking about things like, like cannabis and other drugs? Like, those bigger companies would be able to get safer products out quicker to bigger, you know, bigger populations. Um, and they would be well equipped to have their products available front and center for people. But 
with such a focus again on the social justice side of things like you know the people who have been most affected by the drug war i personally feel like should be the people who have first first snag at getting into the market space where incumbent tobacco companies have kind of always had that market space you know so it's i don't i don't know whether like those two yeah. things i mean this would be very exist, like that thought process between nicotine and and then other drugs you know illegal drugs illicit drugs i don't know yeah. well i mean this would be very unpopular but uh <laughs> i think maybe the ideal solution would be you know, since every state is tax that is legalized cannabis is taxing it, and usually pretty substantially, uh, what if we just diverted some of those taxes as reparations to people who've been jailed for cannabis use, and then let the market do what it does, you know, keep it open? You said it would be unpopular, but the rest of the panel just basically <laughs> applauded you on your opinion. So <laughs> I would love to see that drug drug war reparations could be a really good cause. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would 100% agree with you there. Yeah, but what's happened to all the tobacco taxes since the MSA uh, is kind of indicative of what we're going to see happen with well, any cannabis I think tax. one of the biggest issues with, with the MSA and that is I don't think there's anything in there that specifically states like where and how much right. those funds have to go to. And so it just kind of gets taken and thrown into general funds or whatever. There's mm -hmm. nothing concrete there saying like, you know, 80% of these funds need to go into um, education and cessation programs and things like that. So c states are kind of just left to make those decisions themselves as to how much. And, and unfortunately, they, they don't use very much of it for those reasons. So I think one of those options going forward with other drugs would be to have something concrete in place saying, you know, that this much of the taxes coming from this needs to go into, you know, whether it be better education or uh, prevention programs or harm reduction programs, things like that. Like you do kind of need some something concrete there, because otherwise you're going to see the exact same things you did, like we're talking about with tobacco and, and MSA and taxes and things like that, where when you just leave it to them, politicians going to politics, you know, they're just going to they're going to find other <laughs> other things to do with that money as opposed to. I, I will say I noticed an article today, I, two things, because we got Matt. Matt Allen has, has given us a decent question here. Um, but first of all, uh, I think there was an article out of Nevada um, that uh, the state has collected enormous amounts of, of tax revenue from from legalizing cannabis. Uh, and that money is going to fund their education programs. So I, I would expect and I haven't poured over New York's uh, enabling legislation, but um, I, I suspect as as these laws are written and they're evolving from state to state, um, so we'll see how the market evolves here in in New York. Um, and fortunately, uh, Kathy Hochul has uh, uh, not necessarily a friend of nicotine, but uh, has has started pushing for the cannabis commission to be formed. Um, and uh, you know, those funds are in certain places, as you know, per the statute, going to something like education, which I think is a great start. And, and you know, at, at the core of all of this, people's lack of access to information um, is, a, is a huge, I think, determining factor in, in how we progress through life. Um, and so certainly any support for, for kids is, is good. Um, the question from Matt is, since the cannabis market is ignoring the FDA, can the vaping market do the same? Um, and I, I don't mean to be uh, dismissive or anything, but I think the real issue is that cannabis is federally illegal. 
So it's got still, I don't know, it hasn't, it hasn't, it hasn't been descheduled. It's still a schedule no, one narcotic. It's still a schedule one. Uh, and so it, it's not so much that they're ignoring FDA, it's that FDA doesn't have any jurisdiction. Uh, and, um, you know, in terms of federal enforcement at the state level, pretty much all we have is, I think, the equivalent of like a handshake agreement from the DOJ between states. Is that they're just yeah, essentially, yeah, once a state's legalized, unless... Unless somebody does something way, way out of line, Department of Justice kind of just watches, you know, Um, as as long as people are doing things, paying taxes, doing all the things they're supposed to do through the state's legal system and, and, and whatnot in their pathways, then yeah, Department of Justice kind of just, kind of just, I don't want to say ignores it. Uh, but they don't they don't get they're not kicking down, you know, dispensary doors well, I mean, uh, quite as much as they gotta, used to. He, if you think about it, though, all but one product right now is unauthorized and is technically not legal. So, I mean, he kind of has a point. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of what's happening. I mean, that's kind of what you're seeing with uh, cannabis and now with all these vapor products is that uh that that choice to enforce type of thing. Um, and I think it's really fascinating. I think you should read Jacob's book where he talks about the whole, uh, is it bootleggers and Baptists or Baptists and bootleggers? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, bootleggers, but and bootleggers and Baptists. And how this whole thing with how the FDA got control over tobacco in the first place um, and how a lot of people thought it was a bad idea because essentially FDA is supposed to ensure that what we're eating is safe and good for us. And that is inherently not what cigarettes are. Um, so I thought that was really interesting that you put in there and then how that whole, the, the collusion with the tobacco companies and um, uh, Matt Myers with Campaign for Tobacco Free Kids, he's such a hypocrite. Um, but, uh, and, but something like that could happen with cannabis someday too, you know, in, in order to get the favorite, you get the, 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 um, preferable regulation and to get a hold of the market, there's going to be big cannabis. Who's going to eventually maybe, do you see that happening, Jacob, where maybe cannabis sometime, someday will have, get into this sort of Baptist and bootlegger type of situation with the government because of taxes. I could definitely see that, and uh, you know, from what I've heard, um, and you know, because I work in the in the alcohol industry, and I've I've heard uh, hints of things that you know the big liquor companies and probably some of the beer companies too are, are very very cautious about cannabis, but also very very interested. Uh, and so once once uh, that happens, and I think federal legalization or at least decriminalization would be a big part of that. You know, once once they be, see that as a, an opportunity that they can pursue legally, uh, yeah, I think that's something to be concerned about for sure. Do you think yeah. the anti-smoking crusaders, as you call them, would be, and I've got a paragraph here or a sentence here <laughs> I'd love to read from your book as well, but um, actually I'll do that first. Um, he says, anti-smoking crusaders are so convinced of the righteousness of their cause that they dismiss the interests of smokers, vapors, and other nicotine users as unworthy of consideration. They view tobacco as pure vice and therefore cannot contemplate any loss in its disappearance. The people they seek to control know better. Oh, again. <laughs> um, but those anti-smoking crusaders, do you think if they got rid of, of tobacco that they'd be going after smoking 
cannabis or smoking anything else or drugs in general, but they're not going to just give up and be like, oh, we've got nobody else to control anymore. So yeah, I mean, it seems like alcohol or cannabis could definitely be targets. And, yeah. and, and I'm always amused now when people who are, you know, sort of left progressive, but in the cannabis are discovering anti-smoking laws. <laughs> and uh, they're going yeah. to now deal with the people that we've been dealing with for 20 years on secondhand smoke. And maybe maybe we'll even be hearing about third-hand cannabis exposure in the near future and why we yep. need to stay away from anyone who's... I mean, it's uh, not like we've ever stigmatized cannabis users in this country yeah. before. Right. No, so, it's amazing how it's true. And you guys, his, read his book. Right up where others have left off. Just, just that alone, the whole section you have on the second-hand smoke or the third-hand smoke and how they use that just to stigmatize people who use tobacco as opposed to having any real science behind it. We've been saying this for years. And I also, you mentioned Chris Snowden's book, Velvet Glove, Iron Fist. And um, I read that as well. And um, like Logan said, it's a much harder book to read. Yeah, I brought this up earlier because I hadn't I hadn't read uh, Christopher Snowden's book, um, which is also a fantastic read for anybody out there. But it was really Jacob's book that kind of got me more like ready to approach that book because Chris's book, while great, is very, very textbook. It's a very historical read through of the anti-smoking movement, temperance movement, and and kind of really deeply goes into where we got to today. And Jacob's book is a much easier read on a lot of those <laughs> subjects. It's much easier to get through. Yeah. And you do a fantastic job uh, covering all the, the real big need to know stuff. Um, yeah. And I don't want to spend too much time talking about Velvet Glove Iron Fist. No. But if, if anybody out there, if you've read Jacob's book or you're interested in reading that one, I would also highly recommend. Uh, Velvet and that, Glove but and what I was going, where I was going with that was that we're constantly, we fight indoor vape bans, and it's so hard to convey to people, a lot of our members, because they just say, "Well, I don't vape where I can't smoke," and I don't see anything wrong with that. And we kept saying, "It's gonna get." What, what about when they start banning vaping in homes? Well, that's never going to happen. And mm -hmm. or, I mean, I'm sorry, banning smoking in homes and vaping's all tied in with that. And it's, and then we're now we're seeing it in California multi-unit housing, and you cover that in your book about how we got here um, and how unscientific they are. They don't really believe us when we tell them this whole secondhand smoke thing is essentially a lie. It's it's exa an exaggeration. Um, like popcorn lung and things like that. So your book is very good. It's very good layperson reading so that hopefully people will read it and understand how we got here. This yeah. mindset of the anti-smoking crusaders. Yeah, and people also shouldn't just give up on the principle that this shouldn't be a government decision. This should be a private decision about where you can and cannot be. So right. obviously if the, the private owner of the bar that you wanna to go to doesn't want people to debate there, listen to the private owner. Right. But we shouldn't sure. leave the ground that the decision of what kind of places should allow vaping it should be made collectively or from above by the government. We should we should fight to keep that a private choice. Like yeah. a vape shop. You know, if a vape shop yeah. wants to let, allow vaping, how silly is it to have that wrapped into this general law? That's so sure. true. And, and mm -hmm. if that's true for a vape shop, it should be true for a bar. It should be true for a club. It should be true for even a restaurant or whatever they want to do. And there yeah. are places that uh, where you can get special licensure for that. I know we have a, a cigar lounge uh, literally right up the street from me. Um, you know, they sell cigars. It's a it's a lounge as well. You can go in, 
uh, enjoy your cigars. You can also bring your own drinks and things if you want to hang out there for a while. But uh, but yeah, I, I, I think businesses should be uh, allowed to decide that for themselves. And right now in 2021, if we gave businesses the freedom to say you can allow smoking in your establishment, you know, in 2021 in America, where we have somewhere in the realm of 15 percent, I believe, of the adult population that still smokes, how many of those businesses would just be like, yes, because they right. want to cater. Most businesses want to cater to the the general public, the vast majority of people who are people who don't smoke, who don't vape, who don't, you know, uh, get involved in any of this. I think the vast majority of businesses would probably still opt out. Like I don't see Walmart going ahead and saying, yeah, go on, come on in and smoke because they're, yeah. you know, their focus is the bigger population. The, the he makes that people. point as well too. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's because uh, the anti-smoking movement loves randomized control trials so much. We need to conduct one and just <laughs> randomly, randomly repeal some smoking bans around the United States and just watch and see what happens. Yeah. See, see how much reversion actually takes place. And here in Wisconsin, they have not added vaping to the statewide smoking law yet. It's several uh, municipalities have, but the, the town I live in has not. Um, and there's, I'm, I'm in a small northern rural town. I moved here back in 2009 from Milwaukee. And smoking's much higher. It's a little more conservative. It's a little more, um, you know, lower educated, lower income for in general. Uh, and you'll see, so you see a lot more smoking, which is in general for those populations. Um, and vaping did start to pick up here. And we, I, I do not see people walking through Walmart vaping. I don't see people walking, you know, sitting in a restaurant blowing out clouds. I see them in a bar, and I, and usually it's a bar that you know that. I mean, it's been a few years since I've been to a bar because of COVID, but, um, but I used to see it in bars. Um, and we used to go too, and I'd say, "Can is it okay to vape in here?" Oh yeah, yeah. And sometimes you walk in, the bartender's vaping behind the bar, so you're like, "Oh, probably okay to vape here," you know. And it's, it hasn't been this horrible issue. People didn't start lighting up cigarettes because people were vaping in the bar, which was a ridiculous early argument that they used to make all the time. I think you said that in your book, actually. Uh -huh. I think you said that in your book also. And I said, yep, that's true, because they used to say that to us all the time. Oh, the people are going to get confused and think they can smoke. And we're like, really? <laughs> really? You've probably never seen a real vape in your life. And they yeah. had it. But yeah, that's that's it's interesting that People should really, that's why we fight this stuff. I just wanted to highlight this uh, from chat, from Arbitrary Alias. I miss freedom. <laughs> we still yeah, have plenty of freedom, but. I, I was in Florida recently. Wherever you choose is, is I very think much, very much going away. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, cut you off. I was just saying, I was in Florida recently in Tampa, and I, I went to a couple of cigar bars, and it was is stupid but funny that there were places that said you know cigar smoking welcome no vaping yeah <laughs> oh, it, awful it, yeah <laughs> yeah awful and, and that's the, and that's the law in oregon you know we we have a limited exception for cigar bars but it's literally just cigars so it's it's illegal to have vaping pipe smoking cigarette smoking anything else and it, it, from what I was told, it literally just came down to uh, one of the legislators uh, being a cigar snob, which I'm a cigar snob. I understand it, but I wouldn't put that in the law. I wouldn't say my preference needs to be the law. 
uh, that he uh, made all of the exceptions. We saw that. That's similar to like what we saw in California, right? With Beverly Hills. Yeah. With... They banned the tobacco, but cigars are okay. You know, it's, oh, yeah. it's a, you know, and it's sort of this elitist thing that yeah, very my, much so. my addiction, my vice, if you want to call it, mm -hmm. is worthy of being protected. But because you're from the lower masses and don't make the money or have the education and you choose this cheap cigarette. And again, your book talks about cigarettes. And I, I, I could probably just go through and quote this whole thing. You know, yes, go read his book. <laughs> but yeah, that was such a good point, too, that it was a matter of that's the poor people's vice is not the cigarettes are and we need to get rid of those. But let's, you know, so you had exemptions for things like cigars, but not for cigarettes when you had these smoking bans or hookah even now. That's a big thing yeah. with the whole vaping thing now. Hookah is, uh, but that's a more of, of a, there's a lot how of the optics of going against the minority. Well. What's that? There's a lot of, there's a lot of cultural relevance involved. Right. In that's what I'm saying. Well. Yeah. So then that's an optics thing. You know, if you're on the left, you don't want to be seen as, oh, that's a minority. Although with menthol and Black people, mm -hmm. that's okay. Again, that's that sort of white savior thing. You know, we're going to save you all from your your horrible habit that you've been and being the victim. Yeah, you're, of, you're just uh, a victim of, of a victim. marketing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah okay. you nailed all of that. You nailed you. Your book just nailed all of that, and I was really impressed. You see this a lot, or something similar to that, a lot in uh, just drug reform in general, where we. We hold up other drugs as better or, you know, this is the soft drugs are better than the hard drugs and things like that, which is 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 just really absurd uh, take on it in general. But you, you see that as well. You know, we're we're more apt to uh, to legalize something like cannabis or, or agricultural drugs like um, like mushrooms. Uh, and then when we, you know, we start talking about things like fentanyl or synthetics or things like that, um, it's a very different conversation, which there's a lot more nuance to that conversation. But again, that idea of like my drug is better than your drug. Um, I think there's a really big disconnect there as well. So, so, you know, my, my version of tobacco is better than your version of tobacco. And while there are inherent risk differences and, and patterns of use between different tobacco products and things like that, there's there's still that disconnect of like, well, you know, my cigars should be preserved and allowed, but your, you know, your smoking of cigarettes uh, should be shamed and, and, you know, you should be shunned for that. Yeah. And, and imagine, and the alcohol gets a pass. I mean, imagine if distilled spirits were invented today. If yeah, that would be a hard. That would be a hard drug. You have to process alcohol so much to turn it into this extremely pure experience of alcohol. You know, that yeah. would never pass. Right. Or imagine exactly. they wanted to ban, you know, all the all the cheap beer. I think you made that point of something with cheap, difference with cheap beer. But imagine if you had mm -hmm. let's ban all cheap beer, but it's okay to keep cognac and um, top shelf stuff. You know, right. it, it's just it's so hypocritical. Yeah. Alex, did you have any other questions? I know we're coming up on uh, two hours. Um, a couple. Well, I, I think um, just to kind of uh, touching back on my first question was, you know, when I was trying to hunt down this PBS documentary, I, I did find other tobacco-related, like Nova type stuff, uh, and and I think it's PBS. It was a, it's a three-part series, uh, and I think it was it it uh, it's the Tobacco Wars. 
Uh, and so it touches on a lot of, you know, the stuff going on in the 90s and I think into the 2000s when the smoking bans um, started to take effect in California. Um, I, I, maybe I'm screwing up the date here. I just remember being surprised, like, oh, wait, like this is, you know, early mid 2000s. Uh, and it was the smoking ban implemented in San Francisco. And what the footage is of the, like the cops getting ready for a night to go kind of cruise the bars. And uh, it, it's, it's spliced with like, you know, the bartender who has a, a, a nice Irish accent working at a bar. And she tells the people, you know, just wanted to, the people smoking at the bar. Just wanted to let you know that uh, smoking is prohibited in, in bars in California and people are still smoking. Uh, and, and so I guess it was sort of, you know, it was it, it, this, these were the beginnings of smoking bans. And so San Francisco, in their infinite wisdom, decided that the cops had to show up and issue people tickets for, for smoking in bars. And so if there's a question here, it's sort of, you know, I know a lot of this is that sort of ideological leaning towards the, the top down regulations and, and behavior control but is also some of this kind of inst institutional or societal memory in that, you know, hey, remember when we tried to do this, people were very resistant and we had to call the cops. So, so I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> it's, a, it's a horrible question. I will admit that. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, it, it does bring back one of my favorite memories, which was um, when our smoking ban went into effect in Oregon. Three days later, the owner of the bar that was leading the protest against the smoking ban uh, invited everyone in for one last smoke. And uh, so it was completely illegal. It was the middle of the day. And he, he ended up uh, ringing a bell and getting on top of a table and, and getting the entire bar's attention and telling everyone, you know, what's about to happen is in violation of the law, but I promised all of my regulars we we're going to have one last smoke. And then he read off the number of the health department and said, if anybody wants to call, here's the number. You can report me right now. And of course, absolutely no one did. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I remember know. actually, I, I think uh, that just reminded me of uh, when New York City's vaping ban went into effect. I think Reason held a party at the, uh, it's like the sex museum in, in Manhattan. And uh, it was it was like on the eve of the law taking effect. And after like midnight, everybody vaped and we were all breaking the law. Um, so. Actually, the, I can say the yeah. first cigarette I ever smoked was because of the D.C. smoking ban. I, I literally never smoked a cigarette in my life. And then the night before the, the smoking ban took effect in D.C., I was out with a bunch of friends who were libertarians. And I just thought, well, I've got to do this now. <laughs> yeah. I'm only doing it because it's about to be illegal. So that that was one of, I don't know, maybe seven cigarettes I've had in my entire life. But that was the first. So I, I can legitimately <laughs> blame the DC smoking ban for putting me on the path of trying cigarettes. There you, yeah. So what you're saying is the policy is a gateway to smoking. <laughs> Unintended consequences. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so my last question, and, and I don't know if you'll be able to answer this or not, but this is a joke question. It's still on topic, and it was because of, I think, some of the things that you, you linked to an article about Four Loco uh, in this article, um, which, by the way, I never had Four Loco. I definitely had Sparks, and I definitely regretted it. Um, <laughs> but I was curious if you had a review or thoughts on White Claw versus Everclear Punch. 
<laughs> two things. I, so I, I actually had my first white claw really recently. I, I've got a long time without one. Doesn't do anything for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah, I would say, you know, with every clear punch, there's potential. <laughs> with the, with the right juices, if you use fresh juices and uh, I don't know some some good lengthener like uh, some good ginger beer maybe even champagne you know you could make that good that's so, fancy I'll, I'll do every clear punch my <laughs> my only my only experience with Everclear Everclear punch was at my first attempt at college it was served out of a trash can uh, I'm pretty sure they just mixed it with high sea fruit punch somebody drove the Everclear back from Indiana. Um, I was, I went to school in Ohio. Um, and, uh, that was, uh, that was interesting. And, and, a, again, a very interesting, exciting night that everyone regretted, especially the kid that fell out of the third floor window. Oh my gosh. <laughs> he was well, fine. Those nights he was happen. Fine. I hope that he's, well, I hope that he's still alive and okay. I want to know Jacob's thoughts on vaping, right? right. Yeah. At least we weren't vaping. <laughs> right. I want to know Jacob's thoughts on jungle juice. Because we used to have jungle juice parties uh, a long time ago. For people who are not familiar with what jungle juice is, uh, it's typically when somebody brings out a tub or some large container, and then everybody either brings alcohol of some kind or, or a mixer or fruit or whatever. I mean, we used to, uh, I used to have one of these big, round, I don't know, it's like a giant bucket with rope handles. I'm sure people have seen them all over. Um, my aunt used to use them to feed the horses. But either way, and I had one and we would have jungle juice parties where people would just show up with with juice and liquor. Some people would bring like a bag of oranges, cut up oranges to throw it in. Awful. Never good. It was never it was never like like an exquisite drink. It was just everything in a bucket. What do you think, Jacob, as a as a yeah. bartender, was, as somebody experienced in mixology? How do you feel about jungle juice? You know, it's funny. I'm a guy who writes all the time about vaping, who doesn't vape. And I make my living in the cocktail world. And yet I never even drank underage. I mean, I won't say never, but I, I basically had no, almost no experience drinking underage. So I've had a little bit of jungle juice, but I've missed out on uh, a lot of the 19-year-old oh, yeah. yeah. technology trends. <laughs> we used to have jungle juice hotel parties where we would have one person of age would rent a hotel room. And then the caravan of the rest of us all ducking down in the seats in the back of the van would go, you know, and I was, oh, yeah. If there's any yeah. testament to teenagers are going to do what teenagers want to do and we'll find a way. I am living proof of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If I, could, if I could go back in time, I'd tell my college self to do more of that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it was a it was an interesting time in my life. I'll say that much, but uh, I think it turned out all right. <laughs> I I think so. I don't know. There are others who would disagree with me, I suppose. But <laughs> I think uh, I think this is probably where we're we're gonna wrap up the show. If anybody else has any questions for Jacob on the panel, Kristen, Alex, I'm just gonna do another plug for him. Yes, please Recovery do. Tobacco. You guys get his book. Um, you can find it on Amazon. I got it on my Kindle. Uh, you can get it in hardcover, softcover, uh, just get it and read it, learn something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I appreciate all book sales. I don't know if people know this, but this is actually a self-published book. So oh, awesome. uh, my agent, my agent, I have, I have an agent who uh, contacted me back in, I think 2012 
uh, about writing uh, writing this book, and we tried to sell it. We had a really good proposal. We weren't able to make it work. Everybody, every editor came back to us and said, love the concept, love the writing, but I just don't think there's enough people who care about this issue anymore to, to justify paying in advance on it. So ended up writing the book anyway and going self-publishing. Uh, you probably so, love that book. <laughs> yeah, so long story short, what that means is, um, you know, I've done traditional and self-publishing now and traditional publishing, lots of advantages. You get a, you get an advance, you get money up front, you have professional graphic designers, you have great printing. Uh, the downside of traditional publishing, you may never get paid again. Mm. So somebody buys my old cocktail book, <laughs> uh, maybe you're putting $2 in my pocket in 2035. I still appreciate it, uh, but it doesn't help me out right away. Uh, this book, The Rediscovery of Tobacco, self-published. So every time you buy a book, it really is like putting cash in my pocket. It's, it's, you buy a book, I get a beer is basically how it works out. So, <laughs> Is there any... I really do appreciate it when people we buy need it. to buy Jacob lots of beers. Are there any yeah. specific places or platforms where it benefits you more if people purchase the book there? I'm just Not curious. Can we can we not give Jeff Bezos more money to go to you know space and things or whatever? Um, so the funny thing is, Amazon is actually the the one that helps me the most. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I will say, as an independent author, their self publishing platform is great. So uh, the ebook, the ebook and the paperback are actually weirdly enough where I uh, I get the most return. I get less on the hardcover because that has to be printed by somebody else and then See, sold through I Amazon. The, I knew this ahead of time. Yes. That's why I got the paper. Obviously. But like I tell people, you deserve nice things and I want you to have nice things. So if you want the hardcover, go buy the hardcover. You just be like me and go easy on your books and don't, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't treat I think them it's interesting that I think it's interesting that you said that the, the potential publisher said they didn't think people would be interested in, or if they didn't know if there's enough people interested in it. And I think what the reality is, is that there's not enough people who know they should be interested in it because they don't, right. they don't understand how this, what's going on with tobacco, how it's really affecting, or it ties into everything. I mean, what, what the CDC did with, um, with the lung issues, um, and we just saw that get translated into COVID and mm -hmm. that whole lacking of trust. I mean, a lot of vapors already didn't trust the CDC because of that, you know, and or things like that, what they're controlling, what you do in your home. I mean, there's a larger issue of, of my body, my choice, if you want to take the left side to freedoms to do what I want in my house, if you want to take the right side. I mean, people just don't know what they should be reading this and see how it ties into the rest of your life because it, it really does. Yeah. And then the funny thing is, is after, you know, all this time of being told by editors that this was a niche topic that nobody cared about, the book ended up coming out in fall of 2019, which was peak vape hysteria in the news. So And everybody yeah. cared about it. Yeah. Yeah. But by then yeah. it was too late. I, mean, I was committed. Yeah. Well, I'm glad right. that you committed. And I think a lot of us are as well. Yeah. Um, I think this is I think this is where we're gonna wrap this up. So thank you. Unless there's anything from Do we have anything from I haven't seen anything from chat, any questions coming not, into the chat. Yeah. So awesome. Alex, Thanks for having me on. This was lots of fun. Any yeah, uh any I, last I, I, for I, I feel guilty. I feel like we talked more than you did, but I do um, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Thanks for yeah, thanks for spending part of your Saturday with us. Yeah, absolutely. This is great. 
Yeah, awesome. definitely. Uh, thank you. Uh, not only for for being the author that you are and putting out the work that you do, but thank you for joining us here today to talk about it. Uh, for podcast listeners out there, there will be two versions of this podcast available to you. The full episode where you can tune in and listen to all of us speak to Jacob more than he spoke to us. Like Alex said, we, I think we all spoke a little bit more, but that's okay. Um, or you can also just check out the legislative rundown version of the episode if you're interested in only hearing about what you need to know right now regarding legislation. Um, if you are not currently a member of CASA, but you're here watching this, what are you doing? It's free. It's quick, easy. Head over to Kassan.org, become a member. Did we we broke uh what eight million members recently, Alex? No. Um 260,000 260, strong right now. So help us grow even more. Become a member. It's free. You can sign up for the newsletters. You can read the blog every week. You can get calls to action uh sent to you. All these things that we do here at Casa. Please head over to Casa.org and become a member. And while you're there, also submit your testimony. Uh, we collect testimonies from as many members, uh, as many people as possible on your your quitting smoking story, what helped you, your transition to safer nicotine products, all of those things. Um, and it's it's just a fantastic place to share your story and have your voice be heard. So please do that. Head over to Kassad.org. Uh, and I think, I think that's it. Other than we will be here. Next Saturday, same time, same place, 4.30 p.m., 1.30 over on the uh, the other coast, 4.30 on the east coast, 1.30 on that other coast, uh, east coast, and uh, and I guess west. I used to say best and best coast and west coast, but, you know, Danielle, our president of the board, lives over there, and Jacob lives over there, so... West Coast it is. Uh, thank you to everybody here today who tuned in. Thank you for everybody tuning in to the replay and on the podcast. And one last big thank you for Jacob for joining us today. And thank uh, you so much. Sharing your thoughts and opinions on all this stuff. Please continue to do out. so. Great. I really appreciate and, uh, it. Yeah. And, and anybody on Twitter, if you're on Twitter, you can follow Jacob Greer just right over at Jacob Greer. Uh, I would highly encourage everybody to, whether you're interested in tobacco or nicotine policy or cocktails or mocktails, which is one of the favorite, my favorite things that Jacob has written about is mocktails because I'd never been really interested in it before. Uh, but I know some people that don't drink, but they go out with us and all they ever order is like a Coke or something. And so I want to bring that idea to people, mocktails. I think that's a really cool thing one of my favorite things that you've written about. But anyways, thank you, everybody out there. One last time, uh, be excellent to each other. Stay safe, you guys, and we will see you next time.